Hello, everyone. My name is Eric. Um, I serve back in the sound booth just about every other Sunday, and I have the pleasure of reading the scripture for today. And as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Thank you. You may be seated. Awesome. Um, first service, I was just sitting there with my eyes closed while he was reading that passage, and there's something so incredible about the Word of God. Like, the fact that what we're gathering around today to study is not uh, just a book, it's not just some historical document, it's actually the living, breathing Word of God. And the Word says that it has the ability to, um, it's a, like a two-edged sword, and it has the ability to divide bone from marrow. And what an amazing thing. I just want to remind us this morning as we come around his word that, again, this is not just a text. Like, it's something we get to immerse ourselves in, something that we allow the spirit of the living God to speak to us through. And I have no idea where you guys come from or what's going on in your life this morning, but I do know this, that um, he promises that his word will do what he set forth for it to accomplish to do. And so we, this morning, come before him and we lay down our lives, we submit our hearts to him and ask him to speak to us through his word. So let me pray for us and then we'll dig in. Jesus, thank you for each person here. I thank you for the families represented in this room. I thank you for, um, God, the singles in this room, the youth in this room. I thank you, uh, Jesus, for the work that you're doing in their lives. Some of them don't even know that you're doing it, Lord, or that you've started that work. But I pray this morning, God, as we dig into your word, that you would illuminate our hearts, that you'd speak to us through your word, that it would do something in us to transform us and change us as we submit ourselves to you this morning, Jesus. So have your way with us, Lord. We invite you into this place by your spirit to do what it is you need to do through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to approach this passage a little bit differently. Uh, oftentimes we'll just like work verse by verse through a text. And this morning I'm going to bounce around a little bit because I think at first glance when you read through this passage, it's a ton of scripture. Um, but 
it's really easy to take this, this section and then um, start to literally view it as three different passages, three different sections. And this morning, I'm hoping to bounce around a little bit and help us kind of understand how this all ties together. Um, if you look at verse 17, this verse is like the centerpiece for this passage. It's really the centerpiece for all of chapter 20. But I want to point out a few things about the first part of verse 17, which says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, is what it says. And whenever you read uh, about them um, going to Jerusalem, it will always say like they went up to Jerusalem. And whenever you read about them leaving Jerusalem, it'll say they went down from Jerusalem or down to wherever it was that they were headed. No matter if they were going north or they were going south, it would say they were leaving, they were going down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was sort of the pinnacle um, for the Jews, the, the city. It, it was the place that all of them, that they would ascend to, right? Jerusalem was the center of Israel's story. And so it was the center of, of their past. It was the center of their future. It was the center of their present. And in chapter 16, there's this, these announcements that are sort of made, uh, if we back up. And it's sort of the, the center of the book of Matthew. Like the, the book sort of hinges in this one line because up until this point in chapter 16, four chapters back, um, it was as though everything was kind of happy and upbeat and it was moving, it was kind of building on each other. And then this statement is made that seems as though Matthew's focus kind of takes a turn after the statement and the, the, the teaching begins to move towards suffering. Like the fact that Jesus is moving up towards, he's heading up to Jerusalem and he's going there to suffer and to die and he's making these statements. And so that, that's the way the teaching begins to go. And the line is very simple in, in chapter 16. Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, but who do you think I am? And Peter replies and he says, you're the Christ, like, or the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And this was a Jewish way of saying um, that Jesus was the anointed one, which means he was the king. Like he, he was claiming Jesus as king, as Messiah. Like when a Jewish man became a king, he was anointed with oil, and then this was a proclamation um, that, that this is God's anointed one that, that will sit on the throne, that he will rule. And so now Jesus asked this question, and Peter answers, and he says, you're the Messiah. And then the very next thing that happens is they turn, and it says they start to head up towards Jerusalem. And now we're four chapters in from that point, and Jesus is still on this journey up to Jerusalem, but the question I want to lay out for you is this, like, why, why is Jesus, Jesus going up to Jerusalem? I mean, we have four chapters, this is kind of reiterated through these last four chapters. Why is he going up there? And this is a huge question. It, it means everything to the Jewish people, actually. It makes perfect sense that Jesus would turn and head towards Jerusalem after proclaiming himself as the Messiah, and this is where everything is going to happen in Jerusalem. It's the center of it all. And, and so the, the, the king heads toward Jerusalem because Jesus is king, and, and, and if Jesus is king, then the king has to actually go take his throne in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the city as far as Israel's past, the Jews' past. Um, it was the city that all the kings ruled from, right? David built a palace there, and he sat on his throne in Jerusalem. It's the place where every king of Israel sat and ruled Israel from this town. And Jesus, even like 
as as he's on the cross, hanging on the cross, there's a placard above him on the cross that says what? King of the Jews. And and they're, they're, they're saying this sort of mocking him, but it says King of the Jews. That was the proclamation that was being made, that Jesus is the long-awaited king that they'd been waiting for. And so this king of the Jews has a throne to sit on. He he has a palace he has to live in, right? And, And that's found in the city of Jerusalem. This is what they would have thought. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he's the king, and he's going to sit on the throne. And that's what's happening here. As far as the Jews' understanding, this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem, kick butt, take names, take his rightful seat on the throne in Jerusalem and begin to rule over Israel like any earthly king they had ever seen prior. That is what they expected. That's what's happening here. But modern day Christians don't realize um, this because we've sort of separated Christianity from, um, since, from first century Judaism. So we've kind of compartmentalized the two and we don't like to go study the context of things. But for a Jew first century Jew at the time of Jesus, their idea of what Jesus was going to do if he was the king was to move into Jerusalem, go up to Jerusalem, establish himself, take rule, sit on his throne, and begin to rule with the iron fist that they've been waiting for and take out all their oppressors. That's what they thought was going to happen. So when Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem, it would have made a ton of sense for the, the, the early readers of this text because they knew exactly why he was going there. He was going to sit on his throne, which raises some really interesting questions then. Why didn't Jesus sit on a physical throne? Like when he goes there, he doesn't actually sit on a throne. But, but what you notice in the book of Matthew is that Matthew sort of paints two different pictures for us. What you think things should look like and then uh, Jesus' explanation of how things actually are. And this is the, the, the picture that Matthew continues to paint because what Matthew wants us to see is the way Jesus takes his throne and his place as king is not like any earthly king that they had ever seen before. Matthew wants us to understand that we continue to talk about this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is establishing. Matthew's painting that picture for us, um, that, that a king didn't have to sit on the throne, a physical throne, in Jerusalem. That's what earthly kings did. And we think that the reason a king should sit on the throne, wear fancy clothes, have lots of money, have all kinds of notoriety, the reason we think that that should happen is because earthly kings do this. That's the only context we have. And yet Jesus is here to sort of redefine what it means to be king, to redefine what it means to rule over the people of Israel. And so he says, I'm going up to Jerusalem. And they'd expect him to, to say that when he, gets, that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to rule. But what he actually says is totally backwards in this text. He says this in verses 17 and 18. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, and listen to this, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, that doesn't sound very kingly when you look at the journey that Jesus is saying that he's going to be taking as a king. And so what they'd expect is for Jesus to take his throne and to rule. And what he tells them is he, that when he gets there to this place that he's going to rule, he's going to be arrested by religious leaders. He's going to stand trial before earthly governments. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be put to death. And then he's going to be raised from the dead three days later. And then you know what they do? 
This is the third time that Jesus has said this. And every single time he says this, the disciples stand around kind of going, what do you think he means by that? Like, what, is, what does Jesus mean by that? Like, there has to be more to this. Like, Jesus is just giving us this sort of rabbinical puzzle that we need to unlock and figure out the clue. Like, what is Jesus actually saying? Because a king wouldn't actually go through these things. And Jesus is like, no, I, I'm literally gonna be killed and I'm gonna be raised again three days later. One of the translations says this, that they sat and pondered to themselves what it is he meant. What did he actually mean? And Jesus is like, I'm being very literal. I'm telling you exactly what's about to happen in the coming days. And when I get there, this is how it's going to go down. But they have this way established in their mind of how things are supposed to go based on the only context they have. And so you have thoughts in your mind about how, th how things are supposed to be. We all do. We have these preconceived notions. We have these ideas of what it mean what we think it means to follow Jesus what it means for somebody to have power what it means for somebody to have prestige and Jesus is here to tell you that you're wrong about all of it that his ways are so different than the context and the preconceived notions that we have the way you think power functions is not the way that power actually functions in Jesus's economy the way you think you should interact with people who are powerful and kingly is not the way that you should actually interact with them, and this is what Matthew's doing with this passage, because here's the thing. The tone is set with Jesus walking towards Jerusalem to become king, to sit on his throne in the way that Jesus shows you how this is supposed to be done, in his own way. And while this is happening, there's two things that, that happen that, that, that connect right after this. And these two things don't seem to be interconnected at all, but they're actually identical with one another, the way this passage rolls out. They're the same thing sort of being presented from two different perspectives. And so it's all centered around the heart of the people making these requests to Jesus. And so I want to point out a few things to you this morning and try to make these seemingly disconnected stories in this big passage connect. So the first thing that happens is Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem to become king in the way that Jesus uh, knows he's going to become king, is this woman runs out in front of him and gets down on her knees, and she stops him, and she has this request for him. And it says in verse 21, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. The sons of Zebedee, these are James and John. These are disciples of Jesus's, also referred to as the, the sons of thunder. And so these sons of Zebedee, James and John, um, she, she comes out uh, to make this request of her sons. She kneels down and she begins to ask this favor of Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and he says, what do you want? Like, what is it you want? And so I want you to jump down to verses 30 through 32 and see the connectedness of this. It says in 30 to 32, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. This is a Jewish way of saying king. They had so many different ways of describing this king. They also believed that the king would be a Davidic king, according to prophecy, which means he was a descendant of David. And so saying son of David in a Jewish context is literally them referring to Jesus as king of Israel. 
And so those two blind beggars say, Lord, have mercy on us, and they refer to him as son of David. And then it goes on to say in verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want, what do you want me to do for you? Or, like he poses to uh, the, son of Ze- the sons of Zebedee's mom, what do you want? Like, what, what do you want? And he asked the same question of two different people. And not only that, both of these people interrupt Jesus on his way. And it's interesting, if you look at rabbinical tradition, one of the jobs of disciples of a rabbi, like a, a group of people that are following their rabbi, was to make sure that the rabbi could actually do their work. And so to make sure that um, the, the rabbi was uninterrupted in the work that the rabbi was doing. And so it was a disgrace for them to interrupt the rabbi when he's on the move because in their eyes, the rabbi is somebody of a lot of importance that's doing very important work, bigger than us, far more important than anything they could ever do. And so you didn't want to interrupt the rabbi. He has to get on to the next thing. He's got a job to do. He's got teaching to do. He has to carry on, which is why you see the disciples stopping the woman who's bleeding from coming to Jesus. Like, they're trying to stop him. And then you'll see him stopping beggars from coming to Jesus. And you'll see them stopping children from coming to Jesus. Because in their eyes, these, are the peop- these people are often sort of getting in the way and keeping him from his work and not allowing him to move through the crowds to get on to the next thing that he's supposed to go do. And what is Jesus constantly saying? He says, let them come to me. The children, the sick, like let them come to me. Jesus was not interested in playing these games. And so this woman literally gets in front of him and stops him. And so think about this. Um, it, It says that she came to him with her sons, and so she's on her knees. Her sons are behind her. And how many times up to this point, can we speculate, that that her sons have stopped people from coming to Jesus? How many times have they said, don't interrupt the rabbi uh, with, with your request because his work is so important, he has to move on or do whatever he needs to do? Mark's account of this story doesn't even talk about the mom. It just says that the sons of Zebedee approach Jesus and make this request of him. But Matthew gives a little bit more detail and includes the mom. And it's hilarious when you think about it because they're probably all these people that these two brothers have stopped from getting in the way of Jesus. But yet when their mom comes and she says, guys, you know what I'm going to ask for? I'm going to ask him if you can sit at his right and left. They're like, bug away. (laughs) Like, have at it. Make the request. Like, we don't think you should stop her. And so this happens, and and they let it happen. And she's really doing like a disgraceful thing in the eyes of the Jewish people by stopping this rabbi from his work. But the second thing that happens in the second part of the story is is with these two blind people. They're, They're shouting. And it was actually known that when a rabbi is moving through a crowd, a rabbi would be teaching, he'd be asking questions, he'd be trying to challenge people and help them unlock some of the law and have more understanding. And so we don't have a ton of details about what what it is Jesus is teaching as he's moving through the crowd, but we know that these guys are shouting and that people are upset with the fact that they're shouting at him. Why? 
because they can't hear what it is Jesus is trying to teach. And so they're trying to get him, they're, they're trying to speak over the top to get Jesus' attention. And, and so the, it says that um, he rebuked the crowd, right? And he told the crowd to be quiet. And then it says that they start shouting even louder, son of Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Like the crowd wants to hear what Jesus has to talk about. And to them, it's this rabbinical teaching. Like, it's this really important moment. It's this most important information there could be. How dare these guys interrupt this rabbi and stop his teaching from happen, happening? But these blind guys do not care. They have something they need, and they're crying out in desperation towards Jesus, the one that they think can actually answer their request. And so both this mother of James and John and these blind men stop Jesus in his tracks. Both of them interrupt his work. Um, both of them are asked a similar question of Jesus, and both of them, he turns to them and he says, what is it that you want? Like, what do you actually want? And, and it's the same story two times, both of which are on Jesus's path to move towards Jerusalem to take his throne and be king. And so he's ascending to, to become the king, and on the way, two things happen that are totally identical, but have totally different motives. And it shows the response that Jesus has. And I think Matthew honestly wants us to ponder this. He wants you to think about the request being made because it's likely that you would have the same request as one of these two people when you go to Jesus, wanting one of these same two things. It's likely that there's somebody in your life that you may even sort of look down upon that would have the same request of one of the other people that's requesting this of Jesus. And so you go a little bit further. Both of these requests were selfish, like to be totally honest. They're both requests for things that they wanted personally. The first one, what are they requesting? They want proximity to power. They want to be by the guy who's making the decisions. They want proximity to power. They want proximity to royalty. The mother, the mother wanted her sons to sit on the seats to each side of Jesus' throne, like can my kids please sit there next to you when you take that position in Jerusalem? Like, I want them to sit at your right and to sit at your left. And this woman's not talking about some heavenly kingdom that eventually Jesus would rule over. She's thinking like physical kingdom in Jerusalem. He's gonna take a throne and I want my kids there by his sides. Can you put my kids there, please? And her ask is really for honor and for privilege and royalty. She thinks that this is what the kingdom of God has to offer God's people, which is exactly what the large percentage of the Jewish people believe. They, they actually believe that their people would be on a higher level than everybody else, right? Which is why it was so difficult to understand and to accept the Gentiles coming into the church later because the Jews thought they were the chosen ones. Like, they were royalty. They were his chosen. They, they would be at the top of the hierarchy, when in fact the kingdom of God is actually upside down and it's level, it's everyone together. And so that's her request. And Jesus responds to her request with this rebuke, verses 25 to 28. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be what? your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be what? Your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
For most of you that grew up in the church, you know this passage, right? How many times have you heard it, read it? It's been taught. You've seen it approached from every different direction. Like, we know this. It's like an old hat. This is probably one of the first times this ever clicked with Jesus' disciples. They had no prior context to what's going on, that the kingdom of Jesus was going to be upside down, that it's not going to function like the kingdom of the world. And in Jesus' economy, when you look through that lens, Jesus is teaching you what it means to rule over, and it actually means to serve and to take care of. And so to think that somehow God desires for you to have proximity to power or proximity to royalty, or to climb the ladder, is actually contrary to the gospel of Jesus. It's not what Jesus is asking that you seek after all in this world. It's not what he wants you to go after. And so this is Jesus' answer to the woman. He says, this is not how it's going to work. Like, I, I don't think you fully understand what it is I'm trying to communicate. It, it, it almost is like he looks at this woman and says, have you understood anything that I've said? I think it's gone over your head. I think maybe you've missed something. And so he spells it out. And then when he comes to the beggars, Jesus says, what is it that you want? And here's the thing. These beggars could have asked for anything. Like, it was known at that time that if you asked a rabbi for money, the rabbi would probably give you the money that you asked for because it was the rabbi's responsibility to display justice. He, he would have followed through with that. That was one of their roles. But these guys don't even ask for money. They're blind beggars. Like, this is their job. Day in, day out, for their whole life, has been asking for money. They couldn't work. They were impure as a result of their blindness. So all they could do was sit on the side of the road and beg day in and day out. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't do anything. All they could do is sit on the side of the road and beg. And then they hear that this Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And they probably hear him starting to teach, and they start calling out because they recognize who this man might be, who he's proclaiming to be. They hear the words that he's speaking, and they believe that this might be the man that they've been waiting for. And so they're calling out like, King, over here, King, over here. And he comes to them and he says, What is it that you want? Like, what do you want? They don't ask for money, they don't ask him for power. They don't ask him to rub shoulders with people with notoriety or influence. Um, they don't ask him to connect them with the right people. They don't want any of that. You know what they say? They say, open our eyes. We just want to see. Like, that's all we want. Like, we just want to see. And what's interesting about these blind beggars is there's a good chance, like, they may have had wives and children and never seen their wives and children. Like, in Jerusalem lies the temple, like, the, this magnificent Jewish structure that they've never seen with their own eyes. They've only heard people talking about it. They've only stood outside of it and begged for money as people were going by. And what they're asking is, like, King, would you, would you make us whole? Like, can we see like everybody else does? Can we just have eyes to see? We, like, we've never experienced that before. Can you just restore us to the way that human beings are supposed to be with all our senses intact? Like, we've never experienced that. And then this is Jesus' response. It says, and Jesus, I love this part, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. And what's crazy is when you dig in and you start to study this word pity, 
In some translations, it's translated as compassion. And you might just think it's like Jesus had this emotional feeling. Like, we've watered down compassion so much, it's like, oh, Jesus just felt really bad for them and he had compassion, so he just had to do something. But when you actually look at this word compassion in the Greek, it's splank nemozai. And it's divided into two separate Greek words. And this first word, the root of it, the, the splank, literally refers to your bowels, <laughs> that, that word. It, it, it's like a pain you get in your gut when something happens or you've been found out or, or like an emotion hits you instantly and you just feel it in your gut. And then the second part of this word is nem- uh, nizomai, which means to wash or to cleanse. And so Jesus had this guttural pain or this reaction that, that he wanted desperately for these guys to be made whole, to be purified. What a cool thing. I, I, I really don't know about you, but like one of the things that I really struggle with in my life sometimes is wondering if I've lost compassion. There, there's times where I'm just like, I, I want to I sense I want my heart to break for the things that break God's heart. When I see those things, I want to feel it. Like, I want to know that his spirit is alive in me and he's moving me to do something about the needs that I see. And we live in a world that is drowning out all of the needs. We don't want to see the brokenness. We don't want to feel it because when we feel it, it means we have to do something about it. And I don't want to have to do something about it, so I don't want to feel it, so I'll become numb to it. And that's the world we live in. And there's a couple moments, even on our vacation, where like we were walking down a street or I see something and somebody and like I would feel it. Like part of you just goes, my heart breaks for that situation. Like I, I can feel the spirit of the living God in me breaking my heart for what it is I see. He's moving me. I mean, honestly, this sounds stupid. But we're in Costco yesterday, running into a family that we haven't seen in forever and he's got cancer and I'm standing there in, in Costco and I'm like, my heart breaks for what you're going through. This is your second bout with cancer. Like, Jesus wants to step in. I have two choices. Walk away and go take care of all the groceries and the stuff that I'm here to get. Or stop and pray for this man and actually allow my heart to feel what the Lord feels for him. That's the compassion of Jesus. Something that the, the church is, is Desperately lacking, to be radically honest. And, and yet I read a section like this and we, we can glance over it and just think, oh, Jesus had pity and he touched their eyes. No, Jesus' heart broke for their situation. Jesus desperately wanted them to feel whole, to know what it meant to actually have what other people took for granted. And so Jesus touches their eyes, he recovers their sight, and then this is like the coolest part. What does it say after that? Just those couple couple words, and what? And they followed him. Sellouts. (laughs) He had compassion on them. He touches their eyes. They received sight and they followed him. Some of the translations here say they became his disciples. They sold out. They sold out. These guys became disciples of Jesus. And Matthew frames this whole entire thing on this road up to Jerusalem. Like the king is going to Jerusalem. He's going to need people to serve alongside of him. And on the way, he's going to rebuke two of his own who desire power. And on the way, he's going to pick up two new disciples to serve with him. 
who everybody else has rejected and told to shut up. And that's just the crazy part about the kingdom of God. That's the upside down part where it's like, the, what in the world? The, the ones that he goes after are the ones that everybody else shut out, that nobody else cared about. And Jesus is like, I actually want to make you whole. I think that Matthew honestly wants the readers to sit and ponder the ways that they've thought about the kingdom of God. Like he wants us to ponder the ways that we've thought about what it means to follow God and what we get out of it to to answer the question like, really, what is it you want? Matthew sort of wants us to, to ponder this, to sit and think about it. And actually for some of us, he wants us to repent because a lot of people, when they make their request to the Lord, when they really sit down and they're asked the question, what is it do you want? Is it to sit at the right or the left? Are you looking for power? Are you looking for fame or money? Jesus turns to this woman, he gathers disciples together and he says, to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant. But it's for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Like, this isn't even for me to grant to you. Why are you asking for, me, for this from me? This isn't my job. I'm not here to pick who's going to rule over you. These places belong to those who've been prepared for by my Father, he says. That, that some will end up with power and some will, won't stop asking for power is the reality and this should not be one of our desires as followers of Jesus, like trying to go to him and seek power and try to feed our, our addictions, our desires. And what do you want is the question that he asks. What do you want is the question that I think he would want us to ponder. What is it that you actually want? Because there's this crazy, disturbing culture in evangelicalism today that's like creating celebrity Christians. Like people who just want power. They want to be seen. They want notoriety. We want followership on Facebook and on Instagram. We want people to know about the message that we have. And we can mask all of that by saying it's all as unto the Lord. I'm here to tell you, like, I've had plenty of seasons in my life where I've struggled with that. Like, crossing into my 40s was really freeing, to be honest, because I was like, I don't really care what y'all think. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just want, I want to be a faithful dad and a faithful husband a good friend and like love the city that he's placed me in. Like, I don't care about building a big thing or making a name or getting my post shared a thousand times. Like, but yet that's something that has been sort of incubated in Christian culture in America today is this desire to become, to have power, to want, to, to, to have notoriety and fame. And none of that is bad, but it is bad if the motive behind it is to elevate yourself and not to propel Jesus. It's bad. So Jesus continues to ask this question. Like, what is it you want, though? And at the end of the day, his desire is that you would want wholeness. Honestly, that you want to be restored. That's what God wants. His desire for you is wholeness. That, that's what he wants you to pray for. That's what he wants you to pray for others for, for yourself. Wholeness, because wholeness in any situation can still be had right? Like in hard times, you can still be whole. In easy times, you can be whole. Beautiful times, amazing times, like in poor times, like wholeness can still be had despite what it is you're experiencing. And wholeness is the desire of the Christian because we look around and what we see in this world is broken, isn't it? We see a broken world and people looking to be made whole. They're trying to find wholeness. And so 
when you have Christians running the rat race in a broken world, it produces brokenness when the world wants to see who are the whole ones. And Jesus sees the ones that are broken, the ones that aren't whole, the ones that are screaming out, and they're going like, King Jesus, King Jesus, like, can you make me whole? Can you make me whole? And sometimes the Christians are the ones going like, shut up, he's talking. Like, the sermon to finish. I got to read my Bible. You know, I got prayer. Like, stop. You know, and they're screaming louder. Like, I need to be made whole. Shut up. You know, like, we got to finish our church stuff. And Jesus is the one that sees past all of that. And he literally extends a hand to the one that is blind to say, I see you. You don't see? I see you. And I'll restore you. And in turn, I want you to follow after me. Jesus goes on in, uh, in this passage. Um, and there's this part about this cup, and he says, um, you don't know what you're asking. Um, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And uh, the disciples' response is hilarious. What do they say? Yeah. Yeah, we can drink it. Sorry. Um, they say, yeah, we're ready. Like, Jesus, we're, we're ready for the cup. Like, our bellies are empty. Like, hand me that cup. We're going to tip this thing back. Like, let's do it. Give me the king's cup. I'm all in. And Jesus says, you will. Like, you will drink the, from the king's cup. Like, absolutely, you will drink from what I have. But what you need to see is that this was before the disciples had actually been regenerated before they had been reformed even. So it was before they had been reformed as human beings, like before they were made whole. This was before they moved from this sort of nationalistic Jewish people to this like kingdom of God expanding beyond the people of Israel, including the whole world, where Jesus sits on this throne and Jesus' land is actually everything and his temple isn't just in Jerusalem, his temple is actually in us and it's the body of Christ that gathers together and his kingdom is like the entirety of the world and then we realize, oh, like we don't need earthly kings anymore, right? You get to that point, you're like, I care less who's president, to be honest with you. Jesus is who sits on the throne of my heart. I can care less. What I want to do is, like, serve him. I want to sell out to him. Forget the rest of it. Like, he needs to be king on the throne. And, and these guys, like, you have to understand, they're, they're awakening to this. They're, they're coming to understand what it actually means to drink of the cup of Christ. And so what did that look like in their lives? I'll blast through this real quick. Because it looked a lot different than they expected and honestly, it looks a lot different than what we expect because we come to Jesus, we're like, bro, I'll drink your cup. Give it here. Not even really realizing what it is we're asking for because Jesus is talking about suffering. And, and what we often do in the church is we assume that we're all on, like, the cup that we all drink from, it's all the same, like, right? Our experiences, everything is the same. But it's not the same. Like, you, you expect the same thing but it's not the same thing that you get. The, the, the cups that had been prepared for his disciples were actually wildly different. James, for instance, right? He's the first apostle to be martyred. 
he's killed. Like Acts chapter 12 talks about this. King Herod arrests some of who belong to the church. Um, and, And you know why they're being arrested? Because they're standing up and they're saying things like, Jesus is Lord, which means Herod is not Lord, which means that they're committing treason. And then the Christians are rounded up and they're killed. And then they find James here. And it says, intending to persecute them, he had James, the brother of John, and he put him to death with the sword. James was most likely a teenager at this time. He's a young kid. And he goes to his death. He gets run through with a sword, it says. And he's looking into the eyes of somebody who was a citizen of the kingdom of Herod. And he says, I reject your king. I reject your government. I reject your military. Your, your ways of bringing peace to the world with a sword are laughable because Jesus is actually Lord of my life. He rules by the cross, and salvation comes not by wielding a sword, but it comes with a towel washing the feet of others. And they're like, what? And this guy loses his life for it. And then you've got John, like these two sons of, sons of Zebedee. You've got John, totally different trajectory. The cup James drank was martyred and lost his life for the gospel. John's totally different. Like you read some of, the, some of the church father's stuff and what you gather is that John lives in Ephesus the majority of his life. He, he lives in Ephesus until he's probably like 100 years old. Long, long life in Ephesus. And John's cup that he drinks turns out to be this lifetime of like intense and difficult service. Like he, he, he's there in Ephesus. He's being a light for a small group of Christians in a city that's totally dedicated to the worship of Roman emperors. And he's just this light, this consistent light for years. And yet he, he led them, he, he equips them, he teaches them about Jesus of Nazareth and how Jesus became the king of the world. And he would sit with these people day in and day out and he would cry with them, he'd laugh with them. He, he'd dedicate their children, he'd bury their mothers, he'd serve alongside of them his entire life. He's just consistent, he's steady Eddie. And he dies this old man and he's one of the only disciples to not die a martyr. And it's fascinating because James was the first one to die. John was the only one not to be martyred. And the cup that Jesus calls us to is very different. We can't say he's asked the same of all of us. Whole devotion to him, 100%. But what transpires from that is really in his hands. He's asked for you to be obedient to drink the cup that he gives you. However that is, like know that it's for your sanctification. Like it's good for your life to sell out to Jesus and follow him no matter what it costs you. And so for some of us, some of you in this room, the cup that you'll drink is like this daily commitment to a life of service. And you'll go unnoticed your whole life. You'll never gain any notoriety and you'll continue to pour yourselves out. And let me tell you, like sometimes that's just a painful cup to drink, isn't it? Like, oh, just every now and then it'd be nice for somebody to say good job. Well, there's some people who just will give and give and give and pour themselves out and never get that. And so for Matthew to paint the story that Jesus is going to take his throne, and on the way he's going to rebuke some of his disciples, on his way he's going to pick up some new ones, I want you to ponder who these people actually were. I want you to compare this to your own life. In all of this, we don't know what it is that we're called to but we're called to be ready, aren't we? We're called to be prepared. And that means asking yourself the difficult question, what is it that you actually want? That's what I want to leave you with today. Is 
we make dozens of requests to the Lord. And sometimes I think he's just looking back going like, but what do you want? Like in that request, what it is, what, what's at the heart of the request? I mean, I told the first service, like we were in Hawaii last week and uh, on one of our last days there, we're like literally sitting uh, out by the pool and, um, sorry, I'm not trying to brag about my trip. Um, I was lounging, just like it was warm, you know, I'm just taking it aside. Um, but I like get into this really intense discussion with my wife. It was like, what, an hour and a half or two hours? And we're just like, we're, we're having this intense discussion. And part of that discussion is the Lord like really ironing things out of me. Because sometimes like the Lord can use my wife to be the one that goes, what do you really want? <laughs> I know you want to stay in Hawaii forever and just not have to go back home and do anything. Uh, I'm just kidding. But like, what do you really want? And that question when it's turned on us is, so illuminating because it's really prying it gets into our heart and it asks you like are you looking for power like at the end of the day why do you want what it is you're asking for you don't think Jesus actually knows that Jesus had these disciples asking for one thing and these blind men asking for another you don't think that he knew like I know why you're asking to sit at my right and left that's a great spot to be that's not for me to decide (laughs) just serve me faithfully um and then to the blind men, they're like, we just want, we want our sight. And he restores it. Like, he knows their hearts. He knows what it is they're really after. And so I simply will leave you with that this morning. What are the requests that you're continuing to bring before the Lord right now in your life? And are you brave enough to literally spin those questions back on yourself and ask, like, what am I really searching for? And at the end of the day, if as a church, our heart is for wholeness, gosh, you better like immerse yourself in his word, like spend time in prayer, Sabbath, like rest, do whatever you can, draw near to Jesus and hear from him. Because at the end of the day, if you are whole, that's going to rub off on your family. That's going to rub off on the world that we live in. Because what they're going to see is everything around me is broken. Everything around me is terrified. Everything around me wants power. Everything around me wants to use relationship to get me somewhere else in life. But you guys don't seem like that's your agenda. Because it's not. I want them to see. I want you to see. I want your hearts to be opened, your eyes to be opened, you to understand who he is and the role he plays in your life as king. And I want you to ask the question this morning, like, having your requests to the Lord are awesome. Continue to petition him. But follow your petitions up with like, what do you really want? Because that's the question I think he's asking us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for your church. Um, God, I know how much you love her. And Jesus, as we talk about just your suffering, um, God, it doesn't go unseen that you paid the ultimate price so that we could find life, that our eyes could be open, that our hearts could be renewed, that our motives could be pure. I pray this morning, Jesus, that you'd reach into the hearts of those in this room and as we begin to ask the hard question of like, what is it we actually want? 
God, that you do the glorious work of illuminating our hearts and showing us what's pure and what isn't. But God, I pray for wisdom in following you. I pray for um, every person in this room to experience you in such a real way that daily they would get up and the first question they would ask is, Lord, um, what is it you're asking of me today? Followed up with, Jesus, I'm so, so grateful for the fact that you've granted me another day. And uh, Lord, I just pray as we leave here today that we'd understand that it really is like your ability to make us whole that becomes so appealing to the world that we live in that's constantly striving to see and to know and to understand. And you've granted us the keys to see and understand and know. And I pray, Jesus, that we wouldn't hoard them. I pray that we'd share them. I pray we'd be a people that would constantly be looking for opportunity as we walk down the sidewalk, as we work a shift at our workplace, as we attend school, as um, we're even active in our homes, that we'd constantly be looking for the pockets of need, the people that have been shut out, the ones that don't have a voice, the ones that are shouting and hoping to find somebody that will hear them. And I pray that your church would be the answer to that, Jesus, that we would step in and pray, come alongside, encourage, walk with, and grab a towel and wash the feet of those that we so desperately want to know you. So Jesus, I pray your blessing upon this day. I pray for your spirit to empower us as we leave and you to fill our hearts with gratitude for all that you've done, are doing, and will do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you guys are here this morning and anybody needs prayer, there'll be a handful of us up here, and we honestly would be honored to pray with you if you need prayer this morning. Um, Otherwise, go in the peace and the power of Jesus, and have a great Sunday, amen.